When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the podcast that takes a light-hearted look at lesser-known London stories with your own personal blue badge professional tourist guides. She's Fiona. And she's Alex. And this is the Ladies in London podcast. Happy Wednesday! Hello, everybody. Hi, Fiona. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm going to say happy Thursday for the people who are a little bit more like me and not quite so on the ball. Maybe even happy Tuesday if you're catching up just before next week. Cover all the bases. Happy happy June if you're really getting around to it super late. Gosh, 2042 has gone well. It's an inclusive shop around here. 2042, oh my goodness. Can you imagine? Imagine if we're still going then. I might have gone mad. Sorry, Siri. Siri just decided to listen to me say and decided that I it needed to tell me something. I'm not quite sure what... Uh, Did she say yes? She said, I found this on the web. Let's see what she found. Anyway. Is it to do with going mad? But it probably, almost certainly. She just went... Yes! <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Hello. How are, how are things? All good? Good. Good. Yes, good. It's it's sunny today. On the it might not be on the on the Wednesdays this goes out, but on the day that we're recording it, it's beautifully sunny and yeah. pleasantly warm and oh, so nice. I love these kind of winter days where they like that. Absolutely yeah. gorgeous. Yeah, uh, yeah. Now, have I told you all about the James Bond hunt that I did yet? <gasps> no, no, you haven't. Have also, okay. you did it from a broadland. A broadland, I did. So I have to tell you, because this is one of the most exciting things I think I've ever done in my career. So I run a, I run my own company and I haven't ever really talked about it, mostly because I didn't have a website until about three weeks ago. Um, it's been go- I've had the business for a couple of years and it's been going bonkers, um, which is great. But if you want to go and have a look, it's called a la carte tours and events. Uh, you can find it at alctoursandevents.com. Um, but I have to tell you about possibly the most fun thing i ever did it was for um a couple what, what from the you, us what you did say is you sent me a message going oh by the way there's some extra bits on the website don't worry about them they're supposed to be there and then i looked and there was some <laughs> grainy video of you talking to cameron i was like yes. what what is this yeah. so so tell me all i seem to be getting a bit of a niche with my clients as being the creative one and when they can't think that you know someone's done everything in london they can't think what else to do they come to me and the minute they go can we do i like yes yes, yes we can um and if the more <laughs> you you know that i love an escape room i love a game i had my yeah. escape box um like tudor escape box during covid which i still have in the loft it's still there if anyone wants to play it um i love a, a puzzle and a, and a code cracking type of thing so uh, one of my agents came to me and said, look, um, by agents, I mean travel agents. I don't mean yeah. I have representation, uh, darling, no. because I don't. Um, <laughs> but they came to me and said, like, we've got a, a couple who are in town and he wants to do a, 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 a birthday surprise for his husband. And we're thinking kind of, what, what can you do? So I went back with James Bond. I'd done a big James Bond day the previous year. And then the the word came back sounds great can we do a sort of secret drop you know like secret documents and i was uh-huh. like uh 
yes, yes, we can. And I set about creating an entire day of code cracking, all based, I mean, based loosely, it wasn't really James Bond, but it was in that sort of spy vein. Yeah, yeah. And it started with the guests being picked up from their accommodation at 10 a.m. by a guide, uh, my lovely, our lovely colleague, Joel, who oh, yeah, yeah. took them out and basically said, right, well, today we're going to do an, um, a, a Tudor and medieval walking tour. <laughs> started off with them and then was intercepted by one of our secret agents who gave Fabulous. them their mission for the day and said, right, we've got some rogue secret, a- some rogue agents who have defected from MI5 and they're about to do a big cyber hack somewhere in the world. We don't know where and we don't know which one of them we need you to help us. And then for the whole morning, they were driving around with Joel and they were intercepting some of our secret agents who were giving them folders of intelligence. They'd been given this huge folder of um, several sheets of uh, profiles of secret agents, which had fingerprints on. It had um, agent code names and it also had, you know, their height, it had a photo, all this sort of stuff. And then... They had every time they met one of our secret agents who was a loyal agent, they had to issue a code phrase and the other person had to then respond with something. And oh. if they didn't do that, then they weren't allowed to interact with them, at which point they were then given more intelligence, codes to crack, things like um, messages in newspapers that they had to figure out. There were code wheels. Fabulous. At one point, they had to email an email address and an email pings back to them with a code oh. in it. Um, they had to go using a QR code to a website where there was Morse code that they had to decrypt. And then we took them for weapons training because, you know, <laughs> so we took them for axe throwing, which is great fun. Excellent. Then we got them onto a speedboat on the River Thames down to the O2. It was a private yeah. speedboat down to the O2 where the O2 had planted one of our clues at the top of the O2 for them, which no. is the Cryptex. So they got up there, climb up the, top. Um, climb up the O2, oh. collect the Cryptex, and then we took them to a special location where they had time to code crack everything. And they had to solve a final clue, which took them to the website, which is our oh, ladies' on a website, but it's yep. a secret page, so you secret can't find page. it. Where they had to then enter a code word, which was they'd figured out who and where, and and then there was a video of me basically going, yeah. "Yay, you've done it!" <laughs> and then we shipped them off in a we shipped them off in a Rolls Royce to go for dinner at Rules. And I tell you, wow! And I, I so I'd created all of this. I had my team on the ground, and I was on a flight to Portugal. Just <laughs> the stress levels were so high because I was like, "Is it going well?" And there was like two and a half hours where I was oh, out I of know. communication, and it all went perfectly. And the news came back that it was the best birthday that I had. So. I was very, very happy. So yeah, if you ever need anything like that, gang, you know where to so come. So fabulous. And oh, that, it was so much fun. That That is fundamentally, I think, in a nutshell, the difference between you and me is that when they said, can you do this? You went, yes, I would go, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, like, I created flight but... tickets. I created restaurant <laughs> menus with clues in them. I created, oh my you goodness, are, all sorts of stuff. Like raffle tickets you're and everything. So it was good. great. And it was I, so much fun. I must admit, when I saw these bits before, I was like, oh, okay, this must be some big corporate gig with nope. lots of two people. For two people. That's two people. Whew. I mean, I have done things like that for big corporate gigs as well. But yeah. no, this was two people. And I have to say, it was so much fun. And I really want more people to do it because <laughs> it was it was a labour of love. And yeah. Yeah. Now, now it's sort happy. of, so you've my... got the bones of it. More exactly. people should do it. That was my that was my work win of the uh well, a year probably. <laughs> it's only January, but yeah, I was very, very happy with that. Very good. So, anyway, yes, that's my, that's my story. Excellent. <laughs> anyway, so apart from that, apart from that, that yeah, that's, that's, that's been that's been all well, I've been up to. Really. I was going to say I was going to say a thing which now feels very modest by comparison, but um, 
for for reasons that well anyway for some reason I thought I, I must go back and I must listen to your episode about the Koh-i-Noor because I mm. I still haven't got my head around who owned it before uh, people anyway I thought I I'll, I'll listen to that it just so happened that that episode was the one that was after the one about Frank Pick that I came in to chat to you about and so I hadn't listened to it before but the introduction of that bit you say to Emily oh what you done this week and she, she says. Oh, I went to the, last, the London Transport Museum because it was so, and I went to look for stuff about Frank Pick. And then uh, there was a couple of people who'd written in saying how much they'd enjoyed the Frank Pick talk. And I was like, oh, oh, this is lovely that I, I hadn't <laughs> known about before. So um, it's it's just so nice when, I mean, it's lovely when people get in touch with ideas and suggestions, but it's also lovely when people go, you're doing a good job. Uh, yeah. Because you never quite know with this, like you've said in the past, you sort of send it out into the world and you don't quite know where it's going and how it's yeah. being received. So um, it's lovely. And actually, a couple of things on that note. One one of the things we've decided to do, gang, is uh, Fiona and I, we, we feel like we haven't heard much from that many people lately and we'd, we'd like to engage with you a bit more. So what we're going to do is once a month, we're going to give you a choice of topic for an episode that month. One pick will be mine, one pick will be Fiona's. We'll, again, we'll put it on our social media and you can go and choose which one you want and it will be majority uh, majority rules on that one. Um, so the plan is that we're going to try and do that the, f- uh, the first week of every month. We're going to put the poll out and then later that same month, um, we will then do that episode for you so we kind of thought it'd be nice for, for you guys because we get some requests and we've done some requests before um but it'd be really nice to know what you want to hear um because it's your podcast as much as it is ours so uh yeah, yeah. so that's the plan so keep your eyes peeled we'll remind you of that next week because the first vote will come up next week on that mm-hmm and also while we're at it um if anyone hasn't given us a review on itunes for a while please go and do it we haven't had reviews for a while and our rating i think only from people who don't like us so our rating's going down (laughs) so please go and give us a five star review anything less than that don't bother Um, uh five star review how wonderful we are and and on that note also i found some reviews i can't remember i now can't find them again i think they might have been somewhere on google uh but there were two two reviews that i hadn't read before of people saying how lovely the podcast was so that's very Aww. lovely um and, and one person saying oh posh girls so you know whatever yeah that was that was the one that i think emily and i saw <laughs> ages ago uh, which is very yeah funny. so they are they were um, old i think also i have a little bit of news that i have my tv debut <gasps> happening very soon um last year in the summer and i didn't really mention it at the time because uh, you never know if you're going to make these things but um i recorded an episode uh with michelle rue jr the lovely I chef and i have to michelle. say he was as lovely in real life as you would hope him to be that's very and i was quite happy because at one point he turned to his, his staff and he went oh she really knows her stuff I was like, thank you thank you michelle rue jr thank you, thank you. <laughs> um so it's a series called rue down the river and he is um Basically, I'll read you the description. Uh, Michelle Rue is in the capital from mudlarking and a 2,000-year-old Roman recipe on the foreshore to visiting a vibrant street food market and a 500-year-old pub. That's my bit. Uh, Michelle cooks up pan-roasted chicken, mussel stew, and a delicious pear and plum crumble. So um, I met him in the Grapes pub oh, yeah. in Wapping. Yep. And we had a lovely chat about Wapping and the pubs and what the pubs kind of mean to the area and the history of them. Um, and it was really lovely. I have to say, I look dreadful because I was mid-cancer um, chemo, so I'm, I've got the, the cancer sweats on. Um, I'm horrifyingly fat, um, but uh, we, we've done it anyway. And so it's up yeah. there. It's 
so the, the whole series starts on the 1st of February at 9pm. It's on the Food Network. Mm-hmm. It's got five episodes and I'm in episode four, which will be broadcast on the 22nd of February, which is a Thursday at 9pm. So um, fabulous. Come and have a watch. I won't be watching, uh, but go and have a watch. <laughs> <laughs> So where, I hate seeing myself on camera. where's the Food Network live? Is it something we can all get Food at? Food Network's found, here we go, on Freeview Channel 42, okay. Sky 140, Virgin 285, Freesat 148, and streamed on Discovery Plus. There we go. So um, I'll be on the BBC before long. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you want to see uh, my stupid face, grace your screens. Um, and I'm probably talking absolute rubbish uh, because that's mostly what I do. Then uh, go and have a look. Yeah. Yeah. I'm fun, fun. fun. Excellent. I think you said there wasn't much to talk about this week. I, I know. I mean, <laughs> I know there's quite a lot of news, haven't we? Yeah. Hey, well, oh well. Right. Well, shall we crack, crack on. on with the podcast then? Yes. Is it? Is it um, you? No. It is me That's this good, week. I'm um, ready. Okay. Good. <laughs> and I was kind of inspired by Emily's story, Emily Lawrence Baker from last mm-hmm. week about um, Kit Kavanagh. Yeah. And it reminded me, and I couldn't remember the name of the woman um, at, at the time. And I went back and rummaged through, and it was someone that I covered during Global Tea Break. And I loved her story so much that I thought, actually, this is the perfect opportunity to revisit her. Yep. Uh, because it's a really brilliant story, again, about a woman who uh, disguised herself as a man. Okay. Uh, also wartime, but she wasn't... Well, she, no, I say she wasn't fighting. Well, she, you know, let me just tell you her story, yeah. because... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of yeah. myself here. Um, so I want you to imagine it. It's June 1915. Cast your minds back, if you will. Uh, we're in the middle of World War One. Yep. And a rather small 18-year-old woman boarded a boat uh, bound for, well, Warsaw, France, really. Mm-hmm. She was armed only with a little bit of money, a notepad and a bicycle. Okay. She was dressed as a man. Yeah, and she was headed for the Western Front of <gasps> which is quite a big ask. So this is yeah. Dorothy Lawrence. Now, to go back to Dorothy <laughs> Lawrence and how she how she links to London. She was born in in London actually in Hendon in 1896, mm-hmm. and later in her life she did come back and live in London as well. In fact, she lived and died uh, in London. Um, she had a bit of a, a sad childhood. She she grew up in well, her, her, I don't think her father was known to her actually, um, uh, and but her mother died when she was in her very early teens. Okay, which I think she was about well, maybe even slightly before her teens, probably about eleven years old, something like that. Yeah, uh, leaving her as an orphan, and she was adopted as a guardian by uh, the Church of England and fostered out to okay. um, a man linked to the church. Uh, which more on this later, we're going to come back to that. Right. But one of the things that she had always, her entire life hankered after being was a journalist. And like a lot of these things, a journalist, journalism was quite an unusual choice for a woman in the late 1800s. Well, early 1900s, really, by the time that she's um, a bit more grown up. Um, And, you know, we've spoken about this a lot, how women don't always have the same opportunities as men in that in that era and there's the you're yeah. not going to bang that drum again but um she was incredibly determined uh to do this and she had a few articles published in the times bearing in mind she you know would have been 16 17 when they were published yeah and she'd actually moved to paris in 1914 she wasn't there for long because war broke out and she was scraping together a living as a freelance writer so not really not very uh not great sort of 
you know, career happening. She was she was getting little bits and pieces, but not much. And when war breaks out, she stays there for a little bit, but then she comes back to London um, because her theory is that she wants to be able to go and be a war correspondent over for the you know at the, at the front. Yeah. So yeah. she came back to London and she thought, right, there's there's some good opportunities here. Um, and she contacted the editor of the Times that she where she'd had a few um, articles published and a few other editors as well, and they all pretty much said no. You can um, imagine no. You can imagine even not only you know was she a woman, but also she had no uh, experience as a war correspondent. Yeah. And even the really seasoned war correspondents, the the ones who are you know long in the tooth, have been doing it for years, have seen everything. They were finding it hard to to get to the front line as well. So right. you know chances are very very low. She was convinced that this was her opportunity to show what she could do and that, you know, fate had given her a, a, an opportunity. She needed to, to kind of push through and, and do it. And all the editors refused to employ a woman for what was, well, basically very, very dangerous work. Yeah. She tried another route. She went to the a, the voluntary aid department, um, which was a, a department that, that sent women to do different bits of war work um and she applied a handful of times and they turned it down every single time yeah but such is the the courage and the determination of this young woman that she thought well stuff it i'm gonna sneak in myself and it's thought that she might have had got this idea from a conversation with possibly the editor of the times um who had said to her he kind of made some fairly random comment about how her opportunities would be different if she got herself to the front. Right. Um, but also that her opportunities would be different if she were a man as well. Yeah, yeah. And rather than go, oh, yeah, mm. no, fair enough. I'm just going to stay here and do something. She she was like, right, okay, challenge accepted. <laughs> Off we go. <laughs> and we, I should say, we know so much about this because of her own memoirs that she wrote later. And I want to read you a little bit passage from it at the very start. She said, I wanted to see what an ordinary English girl without credentials or money can accomplish. If war correspondents cannot get out there, I'll see whether I cannot go one better than those big men with their cars, credentials and money. I'll see what I can manage as a war correspondent. Uh-huh. So she knows yeah, that it's yeah. not going to be easy. Yep. And she knows that even if, even if it were possible, she ain't going to be the one getting that opportunity. So stuff it, do it yourself. Yeah, actually, in a way... Um... You know, if she didn't get anywhere and came home again, she wouldn't have failed because nobody presumably yeah. expected it. I mean, no one. There's no one else. Kind of true. Nothing but I suppose also, well, yes and no. I mean, no, if I mean, you're going to fail in a war zone, you, yeah, life and death. Uh, but apart from dangerous. that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> apart from the imminent death, uh, yeah. the possibility of that, <laughs> well, yeah, it's fine. Absolutely, obviously, no stress at all. Um, so. As I mentioned at the start, the summer of 1915, 18 years of age, she she boards a boat and she sets off. And her plan is, so at the moment, the front is down in the Somme. Right. She gets on this boat and she heads over to France. And she her aim is that she's going to basically just cycle through France until she gets to where she's going to the front line. Yeah. Um, she heads to Paris. She knows Paris already. And she thinks, right, well, I can get some help here. Mm-hmm. And in Paris, she met two English soldiers and they, she called them her khaki accomplices. Um, wow. And this is her her term for all of the men who, who help her. So yeah. there's quite a few men that help her. There's probably about 10 or so of them who, who help her throughout her journey. Um, 
and she meets these two guys and she she tells them what she wants to do. She says, look, I'm, I'm planning to go to the front. I want to report on the war. Um, yep. I just think about doing how to do this. And they were quite willing to help her. They, they were quite homesick. She was one of the first Brits they'd seen in a while. Um, maybe the fact she was a woman as well. And, mm-hmm. the, you know, she was able to kind of be like, oh, this is what it's like at home. And here's the stories and whatever. And yep. so they start helping her. And they they um, she says, look, I need to figure out how to dress like a man. So they start smuggling her bits of uniform out in, in well, in washing, essentially. So they smuggle yeah. extra bits of kit. And over the course of a week, they smuggle her out different bits of uniform, some yep. trousers or some socks or whatever it is. And eventually she has a full set. And, and they, they think this is great. They're really, you know, up for helping her. But they also say to her, look, good luck, but you're never going to be able to yeah. get near enough. You're not, you're not even going to be in danger. Like, you're not going to get near enough. So she spends a while learning how to look like a soldier um with their help she she binds her chest um mm-hmm. she makes her shoulders quite bulky with cotton and sacks that she sort of stuffs in and, and puffs out everything okay um she also thinks look i'm i'm quite pale and i've got this sort of very ladylike you know pale um, face all the soldiers have been out in the sun for a while i need to make myself look a bit more kind of sun-kissed so she finds this um cleaning solution which i i've read <sighs> Now I read well. I read that it was a base of pomegranate. I'm not quite sure if that's true or not. But she waters it down and she applies it to her skin and it manages to sort of darken her skin a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, she eventually finds uh, someone who'll cut her hair short for her as well. Yep. The guys teach her how to drill and to march, and they even help her get forged military ID papers as well. Wow. I know. So they're quite well connected. Well, yeah. Or, or they put her in touch with people who can. Or, I don't know. Yeah, either yeah. way. But you know, yeah. I suppose with these things, when you're out at war something like that you're going to have you're going to want your niceties aren't you and, and yeah. the army's not going to cater for that so you're going to have links here there's anyway ways and means exactly um she gives herself the name dennis smith of the first battalion leicestershire regiment and Very off she goes fine. and she cycles off to the somme now the battle of the somme is not until 1916 so she's pre-battle of the somme but yep. she cycles hundreds of kilometers and she's only got a little bit of money with her she so she's sleeping in fields one night she sleeps in a haystack and gets really horribly bitten from you know biting insects and what have you yeah 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 she finds bombed out buildings she sleeps in those she's not dressed in the uniform at this point she because imagine if she's cycling in a uniform someone's going to say you yeah. why are you not with your regiment yeah but she is she is wearing an old coat and she's not wearing any underwear because she's like <sighs> just if you cars. know well because if it gets discovered it's yeah. going to give her away so she you know takes her underwear off and washes it leaves it to dry and someone sees it and they're like oh you're not oh, a man. I see. so yeah she's going to Okay, really? so she's so is, at the moment she is dressed as a man, but not a soldier. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, and then she arrived in a town called Albert, which was really near the front, only a couple of miles away. Uh, away. And Albert was so dangerous that the war, even the authorised war correspondents were not allowed to go there. So, you know, this is off limits. Yeah. And there she meets a sapper by the name of Tom Dunn, or Tommy Dunn. Um, a sapper is a private soldier in the Engineers Corps, the sappers did things like they dug tunnels, um, they built stuff, they repaired bridges. And one of the things they did was they worked with explosive mines. Yeah. And so they, they kind of, they're the, the, the real, I guess, the, the, the builders, the fixers, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, they're the, the, the muscle who are going to, which is, you think she's a fairly slight 18 year old girl, <laughs> woman. It's not the most logical. She's just going to blend in. 
Yeah, mm. but she does pick Tom Dunn basically because he's a very similar size to her. So oh, okay. she's going to be able to blend in. She's not going to pick an yep. absolutely strapping six foot seven, you know, hunk of meat where she's going to look really tiny. Yep. Tom Dunn's quite similar size. And what that means is that he can also kind of help her with some clothing and stuff as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing how many of these guys, when she tells them what she's doing, are like, yeah, yeah, cool, I'll help. Um, and he, she, so he's her next khaki accomplice. Yeah. And... What he does is he helps her hide until he can sneak her into the trenches. He helps her set up her own, well, it's referred to as private barracks, but realistically it's a pretty small, damp cottage, loads of insects, a really damp, kind of slightly rotten mattress. It's not very comfortable. Mm. And this poor girl hasn't really eaten properly in weeks. She hasn't got money. She can't just pop in anywhere and get food. So Tom shares his rations with her. The rations aren't hugely plentiful but he's yeah. sharing them with her until he can sneak her into the trenches right and this is exactly what he does so after a couple of weeks dorothy goes into the trenches alongside tom and she works alongside him okay uh, with the royal engineers 51st division the 79th tunneling company wow and now go on. like did no one go who are you or well i mean I guess just, not. No. I, no. Or you go, I, oh, I've, I've been transferred from so-and-so and maybe, yeah. you know, they need the people and the, maybe that's fine. And without no. wanting to sound really horrific, there's an awful lot of life, a lot of life going on. Yeah. So there's probably a whole heap of people arriving all the time and you'll see them for 20 seconds and never see them and again. And then, yeah. Yeah. So it, I, maybe. I imagine that of all the places, it's not going to be that you've got a, a, a tight-knit group of guys who are have been together for 20 years and they're going to notice an outsider. I suspect it's, you know, if someone pops up in the ranks, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, he's just been brought over just, from the other division or... Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm completely speculating here, but yeah. it strikes me as something... Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be possible if it weren't possible, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 exactly. If it... If it <laughs> she would have been caught if, if it hadn't mm. worked. I mean, so it must have worked. Yeah. 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 So they're in this tunnelling division. One of the things that the... As I mentioned, that the... the, the the sappers work with explosive mines and apparently Dorothy refuses to, to to do this bit. She refuses to set off fuses on explosives. She doesn't want to be responsible for anyone dying. So okay. she's not going to do that. Yeah. Um, but realistically, when she's in these trenches, she's 400 yards away from the German trenches. Uh-huh. Um, the, 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 there was no man's land in front of them. Yeah which was laid with mines. They're under fire constantly with shrapnel and shells. She marches with the troops and she even marches in the opening stages of the Battle of Luz. Wow. Now, the Battle of Luz takes place from the 25th of September to the 8th of October in 1915 in France. Yeah. Um, it was the biggest British attack of that year. And okay. it was the very first time that the Brits used poison gas as well. Ah. 60,000 British troops were killed in that three-week battle. Jeez. No, two-week battle. Two-week battle. 60,000 troops. 60,000. Yeah. Now, that's not anything small. And no. for her to do that... and. I mean, there's war correspondence and then there's pretty much turned soldier, you know, Yeah, which is what she is. Um, and I mean, she's struggling by this Do we point. Do we know Sorry. if she was writing things down or like as she went along? It's, I mean, it's a good question. Um, I, I honestly don't know. Um, I suspect she probably was because yeah. she, we do have her memoirs. Um, 
but she never gets anything published in a newspaper. Right. That I'm aware of. Yeah, okay. Um, so chances are, yes, almost certainly, writing things down to then go home and, you know, or, or get back to the UK somehow and, yeah. and have them published. But she's starting to struggle by this point. She's spent weeks cycling across France on very little provision. She's been sleeping essentially rough in, you know, bombed out houses and mm-hmm. fields and this sort of thing. She's getting really quite weak. Um, she's... It's taken a toll on her health, both physical and mental as well. And she starts having fainting fits. Now, at this point, she's she's been in the trenches for about 10 days. Right. And she decides she's going to turn herself in. Okay. She's starting to have fainting fits. Um, and she doesn't want to get her friends into trouble, but all the people that have helped her along the way. Yep. So she turns herself in and the authorities are absolutely <laughs> humiliated. <laughs> That a woman had managed to infiltrate their army. But and I mean, of course, why would anyone want to in a way? It's like you wouldn't be set up to to stop people coming to join up. It, it's hard enough getting well, people it. to join up. So why, you know? This is it. And they then have their theories about why she's done it, which, right. which are, let's face it, relatively valid. Yeah. And of course, some of them think that she's a spy. spy. That's the obvious. Yeah. Um. When, in fact, she's she's taken um, to, I don't know if it's a prison or a police station or where exactly she's taken, but she's interrogated over the course of, uh, I mean, about a week oh, by six generals and 20 other officers. Aye. So they're throwing everything at her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, at one point she tried to escape, so that made her <laughs> them super suspicious that, you know, that she was a spy. Yeah. Some of them uh, tried to say that she was a camp follower, basically a prostitute. Yep. Um, but she didn't know what that was. She was really young, quite naive. She had no idea yeah. what a camp follower was. So they kind of talked across purposes for quite a while, and they were sort okay. of going, "Oh, you are." And she was like, "Well, I guess I am," and not totally not understanding not what, what they meant. Yeah, yeah, she was yeah, like, yeah. "Well, like, yes, I'm following you," and all that sort of thing. And one of the generals, Sir Charles Monroe, uh, said to her, "We simply don't know what to make of you. <laughs> One thinks you're a spy. Another says you must be a camp follower, and everyone has his own views on the subject." Okay. I mean, so they have understandably no baffled in a sense. Yeah, baffled exactly, and they try to get information out of her, and I, what methods they use to do that, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but she she has no information to give. Yeah. So eventually, they are like, "All right, well, like, I guess you're not a spy, or if you are, you're an incredibly good one." Um, what they were concerned about was that other women would copy Dorothy. And yeah. You know, they can't. The military can't be shown up in that light. Um. So they, what they did is they forced her into a convent in France as a prisoner of war. Okay. So not they didn't force her like, to become a nun, but no. she's forced in there as, as a prisoner. Yep. And they make her sign um, an affidavit to say that she is not going to write about her story. She's not going to make it public. And because they, they're so worried that other people are going to go, Oh, this is a good idea. I'll do that same thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so much fun. And eventually, once she signed this, um, which of course must be quite heartbreaking for yeah. her, because that's that was the reason why she she's went. going there to do. Yeah, yeah. she's going to, to to take notes to 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 be able to write about what's going on in the war, and, and she's told yeah. can't do any of that. Um, and then they ship her back to the UK, and they're like, "Don't come back." Yeah, she settled in Canonbury, uh, oh, yeah. so North London in Islington, uh, on a road called Aran Walk, mm-hmm. and she didn't write about the incident about her. Um, experience, you know, going down and basically becoming part of the army yep. until after the war. Right. Now, why do you think she might want to write about it after the war? Uh, 
because by then it doesn't matter so she thinks she can or is it in some way relating to you said we were going to come back to her childhood no, no we will still come okay, back to that that's fine. a little bit later on okay well part, partly because the war's over but it's mostly because she wants to set the record straight uh okay because essentially she's gone down in the annals of military history that, that she was a prostitute yeah and she wants to set that record straight and go i absolutely wasn't and this is what i was doing yeah so she published an account of her experiences in 1919, after after the end of the war. And it's entitled Sapper Dorothy Lawrence, The Only English Woman Soldier. Right. It's a great title. Yeah. And in that book, she writes, and I think this is a really great phrase, she writes that jerks, not gradual phases, often mark life's process. Ah. So yeah. sometimes just gently moving along, sometimes you've really got to just throw yourself into it. Yeah. Now, this book was not a success. The military were really not happy about this and they kind of took her down, essentially. Um, her career as a journalist never took off. She was discredited everywhere. And that that was sort of it, really. Her, her book just kind of faded. Nobody really particularly read yeah. it. And then in the 1920s, this is where it comes back to her guardian in the Church of England. And we should say this is a bit of a trigger warning um, because it's not particularly pleasant. She made a statement in the 1920s about her guardian when she was younger, and she claimed that he had been abusive, including sexual abuse while she was a child. Mm-hmm. Um, she wasn't taken seriously at all, which which was not uncommon at all. Yeah. You know, a woman's word, particularly uh, on something like that, was not really worth noting or, or worth listening yeah. to. And in fact, you know, up until very recently, well, even, still... even now sometimes, you know, still the issue. And because of this, and this could be, a trauma response we don't really know why but her both her mental and her physical health started to fail right and at the age of just 24 years of age in 1924 uh she no 1920 so she would have been older than 24 yeah. so she would have been 28 um she ended up being admitted to now it's not a name that i agree with but it was called the colney hatch lunatic asylum okay which is up in barnet in north london yeah. And she was locked away in there. Now, this could be based on whatever trauma response she was having. It possibly linked to the sexual abuse claims that she made, mm-hmm. because often if people made these claims, you just sort of got rid of the women yeah, and didn't yeah, yeah. worry about it. Um, and a lot of the you know, just stories, I think we spoke about this when we were looking at um, Bedlam, yeah. that there are tons and tons of patients, mostly female, who would be accused of inventing abuse uh, due to whatever kind of fantasies or neuroses yeah. or whatever hysterical. it might be hysterical exactly exactly and if if you stepped out of what was socially acceptable you could just be sent to an asylum um yeah. your accusations would be labeled a sign of mental illness and of course um with dorothy she's got no family members yeah so she's got no one to speak on her behalf yeah her parents are gone she hasn't got any other family and that's it and really sadly, she was there for 40 years until she died in Aww. 1964. So it's a really, she had a really sad life yeah. with this very short, very notable, amazing period where she went off to do something completely unbelievable. Yeah. Um, really sadly, she was buried in a pauper's grave in Southgate Cemetery without a grave marker and no obituary. And we don't know the exact location Aww. where she's buried. She's really, really sad. Yeah. So it's incredibly important what she did do in her, frankly, very unhappy life. Um, But why do we know so much about her? Well, if her book was written and and then discredited and nobody really read it, 
it's only recently that her story has come to light. And this has happened so much. We had this with um, Sophia Dudip Singh. We had this with Norinite Khan. Yeah. Somebody will kind of go rummaging and be like, oh, that looks interesting and pick it up. Yeah, yeah. And in this occasion, um, her autobiography was rediscovered in the early 2000s. There was, in 2003, there was a chap called Richard Bennett uh, who was researching his family history. And his grandfather was a chap called Richard Sampson Bennett, Mm -hmm. who just so happened to be one of the soldiers who helped Dorothy Uh on her journey. Yeah. And he found this account whilst digging and and whether it had been something in his grandfather's, I don't know, memoirs or written down, we don't know, but clearly there was enough for him to go looking and and to then find um, her story, whether maybe, I haven't read her book, but whether his his name particularly is mentioned in there and that was flagged up. I don't really know. Yeah. Um, but he went digging and he found her book and a historian then called Raphael um, Stipich did a bit of extra digging, picked up this this story and thought, right, I'm, I'm going to go on the search here. And he found a letter that had been written by a guy called Sir Walter Kirk. And Sir Walter Kirk was the head of the British Expeditionary Forces during World War One. Right. This letter in it was mentioned a young woman who dressed as a man uh-huh. in the hopes of reaching the Western Front. Yeah. And all the details in the letter pointed to Dorothy Lawrence and it, it completely sort of validated her oh, okay. story that she'd written. So she became the only known English woman soldier on the front line in World War One. The Imperial War Museums highlight her work now as well. Yep. Her autobiography has also been reprinted, so you can now buy her yep. autobiography and read her entire story of what Excellent. happened here. And bear in mind, it was it was printed in about 1919, so before uh, she was admitted to Colney Hatch, which, yeah. you know, so it, it's just about that story. It's not a whole life memoir. It's her story of being um, the only woman on, on the western front in world war one and i just think it's the most incredible story yeah. of determination of resilience and also just a really sad story about how a woman who can show the authorities up to that degree can sort of be sidelined quite easily and and, and forgotten about um yeah yeah um i mean that really sad degree of focus in order to achieve all that mm. um also, if you then come back and you don't, you don't have anywhere to put that energy. Yeah. In a way, that's yeah. that's also and um, and also no one's believing you, and probably yeah, you know, there might have been some bad press about her. They would almost certainly, you know, I can't imagine she was brought back to the UK and then everyone was like, okay, bye, bye, see bye. You. you know, who knows? There might have been people on, you know, waiting on her doorstep, checking up on her, or, or or you know, popping in to make sure that she's not writing things. So she may well have felt really under pressure. Yeah. Um, but I don't know how many of us would have been able to put up with two months of cycling and sleeping rough through the French countryside on little to no food and then go and fight 10 days in the World War One trenches. Yeah. I mean, what an extraordinary feat. And, and as an 18-year-old as, as well. As an 18-year-old. That's yeah. quite... And, and nobody rumbled her. They all, you know, they all thought she was a guy. They thought she was there, one of them. Yeah. Very it's, impressive. It's extraordinary i'll say i'll say it again you do find people you have a knack of finding the extraordinary people um and it's yeah so that's the story of dorothy Lawrence, and we do have pictures of her in her um, uniform and some of the other lovely portraits of her too um yeah and i think colney hatch now is Is probably a block of flats yeah i think one of those ones maybe i feel like now this is going to sound incredibly weird (laughs) 
and it, I may be completely wrong about this, but I feel like Colney Hatch is now, I think it's sort of like almost looks like a bit of a mansion house. Yeah, I think. Which has been converted into flats. And I believe that, <laughs> go with me on this. When, well, no. I believe that when One Direction first formed, they all lived together in a flat in the Colney Hatch building. Ah, okay. How do I know this? I once did a One Direction tour and I did lots of research and I feel like my brain is fizzing with that. That's a completely random thing to say, but let's let's go with it. Uh I was going to say that I've got a thing about something. I, there's something I know about it. I know the name uh, Freeern Hospital. Yes, that's where she died. That's where. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's that's what it was also known as. Or Fryan, I suppose, because Fryan Barnett. Oh, I suppose so. Free, yeah. Well, I. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd, what do you say, Freeann? I'd Barnett? say Freeann Barnett. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. And that's that's the end of a bus route, isn't it? So it's one of those places that you yes. you kind of know about because it's the end of the bus route. Uh, notable residents. Here we go. Here we go. This is just randomly. Oh, interesting. So Adamant. Okay. Oh. Hmm. Oh, it, uh, okay. In 1976, uh, following a suicide attempt. So actually, while it was still a hospital. Oh. So actually, oh, these, these may well be, most of these might be Dorothy Lawrence. There she is. Um, Aaron Kosminski uh, and two other possible Jack the Ripper suspects gosh interesting um, um, so it, it closed its doors in 1993 and I'm looking at yep it, the posh apartments of Prin- what is now called Princess Park Manor have been home to today's hottest acts such as One Direction the wanted JLS and Girls Aloud so maybe it's some sort of you know uh, like I don't know the voice or something have or, or pop idol or whatever it is yeah have pop idol that's up yeah x factor like maybe they have some i don't know apartments there that they put people up in when they're competing on those shows but uh yeah yeah interesting there you go so i wasn't wrong i do there was something in my brain about no it's funny when you there's something something in the back of the head somewhere and you just know it's like there's something i know about this very odd yeah there we go so that's dorothy thank you Laura right well i think that's it for this week uh, anything else we need to tell everyone before we uh, oh tickets depart? come 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 to the live yes come to the live podcast recording on the 20th of come march on, on. and so there's still some tickets available not huge amounts yes. but some oh and actually someone did get in touch and said oh point out to remind people that it's not in wanstead so although it's called the wanstead yes. tap don't go to wanstead it's north yeah. of Forest Gate, so your closest stations, either Forest Gate or Wanstead Park, which is on the overground. City Mapper is your friend. Yes. On this one. Yeah. Um, but it's very easy, and and I think you were mentioning the, the Elizabeth line, the Betty. The Betty. Yeah, nice and easy. I'm very what? excited. Without me prompting you, you called it the Betty. That is my mission. Oh, in I've life. always called it the Betty. Excellent. I love it. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Why wouldn't you call it the Betty? It's great. Yeah. I love it. Okay, Happiness. well, yeah, we will see you in a couple of weeks for uh, our live. We're very, very excited about that. We're, we're cooking up some fun things. Yes. Um, probably we're going to definitely do one episode and then some stuff that almost certainly won't make <laughs> the podcast. Uh, so the it's going to be fun for just way, the people in the, the room. The only way you will enjoy it is by being in the room. Exactly. Finally got around to seeing Hamilton. So be in the room where <laughs> it happens. <laughs> My brain exactly went there as well. The room where it happened. Yeah. <laughs> So be in the room where it happens. But we will see you then. And uh, otherwise, we'll see you next week for another episode of the Ladies Who London podcast. Bye, guys. Bye.